0: The Book of Judges, a dark time in Israel's history, a pattern of failure, failure to follow God's law, failure to train up the next generation, failure to remember and celebrate God's faithfulness. We may be tempted to see the Judges as heroes of the faith. However, the only hero of this story is God himself. The people of God chose the pleasures of sin over the promises of God. And the story of Judges is our story as well. In a desperately wicked and fallen world, the book of Judges reveals both the disgrace of sin and the deliverance only God can provide. study through the book of Judges, there's a point I want to make sure that we all understand early on. I think we tend to make the book of Judges about the characters called Judges. I mean, in our defense, it is the name of the book. In our defense, there's great things to see and learn from the Judges, but when we focus on the Judges, so often we miss another central character of the book. God. This book is more than just a historical lesson of what certain men and women accomplished. It's a book that highlights the disgrace that comes with sin and the deliverance that comes from God. Chapters 1 and 2 that we went through last week, they really set the stage for us They set the stage on how this land where we expected promise, we expected peace, we expected prosperity, how within one generation it began to spiral more and more to disgrace. Back and even in Genesis chapter 2, let me remind you, it's a great summary of the first couple chapters. Look at what it says, Genesis chapter 2, oh, sorry, I didn't put it on there. But turn to there. Look, let's turn. Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Judges 2, 11, it says this. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. Verse 14, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. Now we enter into chapter three. We pick up on that somber note. We pick up from that somber note that because of their sin, because of their idolatry, that God sold them into oppression, sold them into slavery. And now we're going to see throughout the remainder of this book the spiral towards disgrace that they experienced as a result of that time. In chapter three, we're going to get our first glimpse at some judges, but also in chapter three, we're going to get our glimpse into three powerful lessons of God. So if you haven't already, will you join me uh, in the book of Judges, fifth book of the Old Testament? chapter 3. And while you're turning there, I just want to make one final plug for the sermon study guides that Pastor Jeff writes and our office uh, assembles for you. Uh, this study guide is more than just a place for you to keep notes. It it's provides introduction material. It provides questions. And our hope is that you'll not only spend Sundays with us in the book of Judges, but throughout the week, you'll continue to allow the word of God to wash through your life. You might Hear from God's word more than just Sunday, but every day throughout the week. We have these in various forms. We have the spiral bound printed version. We still have those available. If you didn't get one and you want one, just raise your hand. Our leaders will be more than happy to bring one over to you. You got to raise it high uh, and they can bring those to you. You can also download the digital copy. You can go on our web page. Seriously, Darren. Oh, okay. Good for you. Good man, raising your hand for your wife. Yeah, all right, good for you. Taking one for the team, good job. If you're not as brave as Darren to raise your hand and get called out by the pastor, you wanna just download it, you can download the PDF on the webpage, or you could download the Chino Valley Community Church app, and, and those stu- uh, study guides and sermon notes will be provided to you. And, and this week, if you're not on social media, maybe you didn't hear, Pastor Ken has already been hard at work, and he's put a number of resources for parents, grandparents, family resources available as you seek to continue to try to reach the hearts of your family and the next generation for the glory of God. This is also available on the app. You just go to Ministries, click on Family Ministry, and you can read through all of those resources. You can get all that just by downloading the Chino Valley Community Church app. Now that we've gone through all that, let's get back to our series, Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Here's what we read. It says, Now these are the nations with, the jo- with which the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, only in order that the generation of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formally. These nations are the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidians and the Hivites who live in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal hermon as far as uh, Lebo-Hamath, and they were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commands of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. First thing we see is we see that word at the first sentence. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left. That term left means to allow to stay beyond their agreement, to leave alone. If you remember, God had promised to go before Israel and drive out all these nations from the promised land. He made that commitment. I will go before you and I will drive them out. Here's the problem. Israel wasn't faithful in doing their part. And as a result, God left. God left them alone. God allowed them to remain in the land for a purpose. And I want to make sure you see this. See, it would be very easy for God to say, okay, that's it. I'm done with you. From the very beginning, I did my part. You didn't do your part. I'm out. But from the very start, we don't see that. We see God taking the failures of man and continuing to use them for his glory. It's very much a theme we see throughout this book, and it's a theme that Paul even addresses in the book of Romans. You see the plan of God. Look at Romans 8, 28. It says this. This is the apostle Paul. He says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now again, I want to hit pause for a moment because some people get super excited about this because they misread it. This doesn't say God works everything together for your good. God works everything together for his good. That's a very important distinction that we need to be aware of or you're going to be gravely disappointed in your Christian life. God does not promise to do everything in life for your happiness, for your benefit, for your good. He does it for his good, and we see that in this passage. God takes this situation, he rescues his people from Egypt, makes them his holy nation. They're gonna be a light on a hill. They're going to be a blessing to the world. He brings them to the promised land from the very beginning, one generation later. Pfft. No one would blame God if he walked away. But we see something powerful right from the very beginning. We see the plan of God. If God's going to take this situation. he going to use it. Not only in these first four verses do we see that there is a plan of God, we actually get to know what the plan is. That's why I love the Bible. It helps us understand that God isn't surprised. God isn't taken back. God has taken all of this in stride. He's like, I'm going to use all of this brokenness. I'm going to use all of the disgrace and I'm going to do something powerful with it. In fact, I'm going to do two things, God said. First thing we see the plan of God is there's training. Do you see that? You see that in the text? He says, no, these are the nations which the Lord left, I'm again in verse one, to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of, of Canaan, only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formally. Let's stop there, because people say, oh my gosh, I hate that about God. God loves violence. God loves war. His whole purpose is to make sure that these people become great fighters. And I want to tell you that is not what that text is saying. It's not saying God loves violence. He wants to turn him into these, these Greek gods of war. That is not what God is after. God wants people of Israel to practice battle so they can experience victory as God goes before them. Do you see that? You need to remember what happened at the very beginning of Judges. Look back at Judges chapter 1, verse 19. Now the Lord is with Judah, and they took possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. Remember all those big biblical buts from last week, 21. The sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. Verse 27, Manasseh did not take uh, possession Verse 28, they did not drive them out. Verse 29, Ephraim didn't do it. Zebulun didn't do it. Asher didn't do it. Defeat after defeat after defeat after defeat. God says, you know what? I'm going to take this time. I'm going to leave people in here. So you experience victory. Victory through the provision of God. That's what... God is talking, I'm gonna leave them here so they can practice victory, walking with the Lord and seeing his power go before them. Number one. Number one, God says, Here's my plan. Number one is to train. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 20. Let me remind you of what God says. Says, When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, don't be afraid. For the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. First thing, God wants to train them. If God is for you, who can be against you? It's a lesson the previous generation missed. Because this first reason I'm leaving these people to train you. You experience victory at the hands of God. But secondly, we see another word. Look at verse 4. Another part of God's plan, number one, for training, number two, for testing. Look at verse four. They were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. Second part of God's plan is to test. That term means to prove one's purity, to evaluate one's true nature, to allow trouble in order to see the result. God was very clear When you go into the promised land, I don't want you to do comparative religion studies. I don't want you to build a big ecumenical movement with all the false religions in the land. I want you to be separate. I want you to drive them out. Let me remind you what he said, Deuteronomy chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you're entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Look at this, furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Why? For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. He will quickly destroy you. God said, I don't want you to mess around. I want you to not build relationships. I want you to get these people out of there. And we love to think that Israel could go in and intermingle with these people and and draw them closer to the Lord. That's what we always think. But more times than not, the people of God aren't the ones influencing. The people of God are the ones being influenced. That's exactly what happened. I tell my boys all the time, As they're looking today, they're looking to build relationships. I keep telling them, please, find a young lady who loves the Lord, who is committed to his word. We all know someone. Well, so-and-so was a good Christian. She married this complete wackadoodle, and now look, he's an amazing Christian man. We all know one. But for every one, there's a hundred that get left astray. Listen, God's point, God's purpose, his plan is to leave these people, number one, to train them that they would experience victory. They might learn to trust God as they go into difficult situations. And even though they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, they're gonna fear no evil because God is with them. But he also wants to test them. I'm gonna leave these people in here and I'm gonna determine I seek proof of your heart for me, your obedience to me, your commitment to me. Are you going to honor my commandments, my directives? Or are you going to be led astray? Well Let's see how they did, shall we? Look at verse 5. The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Verse 6. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives. And gave their own daughters to their sons, and then served their gods. F. Verse 7. And then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashroth. I want to make sure you understand that did what was evil inside of the Lord, that's going to be a phrase that you see repeated over and over in this book. And it's packed with meaning. Number one, that term evil means to do more than just something wrong, it means to do something contemptible, reprobate, something wicked. And it doesn't just say, and they did what was evil. They did what was evil in the sight of God. Man, I got to tell you, there's nothing that ticks me off more than when my boys disobey me right in front of my face. When I tell them, please don't do that. And they look me in the eyes. Boop. Oh. That burns. That's what the Bible's describing Israel. Not only did they do evil, they did evil in the sight of the Lord before his very eyes. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals. Like, this wasn't some little thing. No, 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 this was a big deal. Verse 8, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. A term, anger, describes someone who is literally on fire mad. They are hot with anger. They are beyond ticked. I mean, he is on fire mad. It continues, not only is the anger of the Lord, it was kindled. That term kindled clarifies it even more. It's used to describe an angry bull who flares their nostrils and snorts right before they charge. I mean, they did evil in the sight of the Lord and the anger of the Lord was kindled. He was on fire mad and he's getting ready to take them down so that he sold them into the hands of, Of Cushan Rishthatham, king of Mesopotamia, and the sons of Israel served him for eight years. See the plan of God? Because of Israel's failure, God left these nations to train and to test. Within the first eight verses, Israel already failed. And it should lead us to a spot of despair, of hopelessness, of why is this book so long? I mean, after the first part of chapter 3, we would all be done. But that's what leads us to the next lesson. See, first we have the plan of God. But the next thing we see is the grace of God. Look at this. Look at verse 9. When the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, Lord has raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Look at this, verse 9. When the sons of Israel cried to, like we have this, we have this image of that cried to the Lord as this repentance. God, we're sorry. That's not what that word means. That word, mean, uh, that word cried out means they wailed in pain. They wept from torment. They are not repenting. They're whining. They're not repenting. They're crying. There's a big difference. Put your thumb in Judges and flip over to the left to the book of Exodus, chapter 2. I want to show you another time that word is used. Exodus Chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. This is when Israel is deep within slavery and oppression of Egypt in Egypt. Exodus 2, verse 23. Look what it says. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. And there it is. And they cried out. So this is not a repentant word. This is, a, I'm in pain. I'm crying out in pain and in misery. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. Verse 24, so God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel and took notice of them. Now let's go back to the book of Judges. Because I want to make sure you, you don't miss this. See, a lot of us have this misunderstanding that God responded with the first judge because of their repentance. He didn't. God responded with the first judge because of his compassion. He heard their cry. Let's go back one chapter. Judges chapter 2, verse 18. I want to make sure you see this because this is an important message about God. Judges chapter 2, verse 18, when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. I want to make sure you understand. I mean, God's mercy, God's grace is rooted in his compassion. God's grace is rooted in his compassion. Isn't that what Paul says? Look at Ephesians chapter 2. I want to make sure you guys know I'm not just blowing smoke here. I'm not talking about some weird doctrine. Look at Ephesians 2, eight, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I'm not saying repentance even isn't important. I just want to make sure you know what motivates God. God's grace is rooted in his compassion. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Paul said. But the grace of God is not just rooted in God's compassion. That's also empowered by his spirit. See, it's God's compassion. Let's get back to Judges It's God's compassion on Israel that leads him to empower Othniel. Look at verse 10. He raised up Othniel, the deliverer. Verse 10, the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave uh, Kushan Rishthayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand so that he prevailed over him. Now, I want to make sure you understand. It says, The Spirit of the Lord, first in Hebrew, Spirit of the Lord, the very breath of God. The breath of God, the presence of God, understood, we need to understand as the Holy Spirit, and it came upon him. That term came upon means to come alongside of someone. It's very different than the New Testament description of believers today, where we're filled with the Spirit, indwelt by the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit. In the Old Testament, As in the case of Othniel, like God would select one individual, one individual to give him, uh, to come alongside him, supernaturally empower him to accomplish a specific task for a certain amount of time. This was not the prevalent norm for people of God in the Old Testament. Everyone in the Old Testament didn't get the breath of God. Everyone in the Old Testament didn't get the Holy Spirit. It was the superstars. It was the people that God picked for a specific task for a specific time. All of that you need to understand, the plan of God. You have the plan of God in the midst of everything broken down. You need to remember in the midst of it, God had a plan. That to my first question for you. Where in your life do you need to recognize and remember that maybe God still has a plan for you? And maybe your family isn't working out the way you wanted. Maybe your kids aren't becoming who you dreamt of. But I want to make sure you understand, God still has a plan. Maybe California isn't all it cracked up to be. You look down the future of our state, And you just see a further slide to godlessness and immorality. But before you abandon all hope, is it possible that God still has a plan? Look at the state of the church, the church in the United States. More churches are closing now than ever before. More pastors are quitting now than ever before. If you look online, you just start reading articles where people are concerned about the church and yeah, there's concerning trends, but can I remind you, even back in the Old Testament book of Judges, God took all that brokenness and he had a plan to use it for His glory. Can I ask you, Where are you in despair? Where are you broken? Where do you think God has walked away? Is it possible? But God still has a plan, and he's at work in the midst of the darkness of your situation. But I also want to remind you, God's grace, God's grace is rooted in his compassion for you. He empowered Othniel. Look at the result of Othniel's life, verse 11. Then the land had rest 40 years the term rest means to have relief from judgment, a momentary calm from the expected struggle. This doesn't mean a reprieve. This isn't forgiveness. This isn't, hey, God is finally good. Everything's great. Woohoo!" This is, you get a break. You get recess. 40 years of rest. 40 years of reprieve. made me think this week, I wonder if some of you need that rest. I feel like, man, I've been under it. I've been under it for two years. I need a break. Maybe it's time you cried out to the Lord. Maybe it's time you cried out in pain. Maybe it's time you whined to the Lord and ask for rest. You might say like, oh, Brian, God doesn't want to hear from me. God's uninterested in what's going on in my life, and I want to make sure you understand that not only do I disagree, Scripture disagrees. Look at Psalm 86. Psalm, says this, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Psalm 103.8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Psalm 145.8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. Even in the New Testament, 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, but is patient towards you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I want to ask you is it time for you to just cry out to the Lord, asking for rest, for reprieve, for a break? Maybe it's true for your life, maybe for your family, maybe for your state, maybe for your country, maybe for your church. Maybe it's time for you to cry out to the Lord. In just a moment, we'll have a time to cry out together. But there's one final lesson I want to make sure you see in this text. We see that God has a plan. Even in the midst of all this brokenness and judges, God has a plan. And we see that God still has a plan for us. We see that grace of God, that is rooted in God's compassion, and it's empowered by His Spirit, It's no wonder why Paul promises the peace of God that's beyond human comprehension if we'll just lay our cares and our burdens at his feet. And that peace of God will guard your heart and your mind. That rest, that peace is still available for you today. But the third Third lesson of God. We have the plan of God, the grace of God. Now I want to show you the reminder of God. After that time of Othniel, look at verse 12. We see a very familiar phrase. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, And he went and defeated Israel. They possessed the city of the palm trees. The sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Verse 15, but. Here we go again. Big biblical but. If you're into circling those, circle that. But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, they cried out in pain. The Lord raised up a deliverer to them. Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Let's stop there for a moment because here's the brouhaha on this. There are some people that say, okay, Ehud, he's a left-handed man. In the Hebrew, that means that your right hand is bound up. Almost every time what that means is that he's disabled on his right hand. So Ehud was this disabled young man with his right hand, that right hand of strength, that right hand of power. And God chose this weakened person, the disabled man, to deliver the people. That's one view. Another view says, no, 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 Brian, that doesn't mean that he's disabled. It just means he's left-handed. I have a left-handed son. Nothing in the world looks, works right. Scissors don't even work right for left-handed people. No, I was just saying that he's, he's a left-handed person. Other people say, no, what that means is he's ambidextrous. He can actually use both hands. And we get so hung up on the message and the person of Ehud that we miss the purpose of the passage. See, the story isn't about Ehud, whether he's disabled or not. It's about God and something Ehud remembered about God. Let's keep going people did evil in the sight of the Lord. They cried out. God again raised up another deliverer named Ehud. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Ehud made himself a sword, which had two wedges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man, It came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. Verse 9, but he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, keep silence, and all who attended him left him. Let me pause for a moment, make sure you're catching on. So the people of Israel, because they were in servitude to Eglon, had to make tribute. They had to pay ransom. They had to bring goods and money. That was part of their deal with Eglon. And as they came, this humiliating aspect, Ehud was one of those people, the leader of that group that was bringing the tribute, bringing the payment, bringing the ransom to Eglon. And they make the payment, they start walking back home, humiliated, wondering where's God? How did this happen to us? We're in the land of promise. We're expecting prosperity and peace. What happened? And on their way back, they walked and they went to Gilgal. See, Gilgal's a special place. Gilgal's the first stop into the promised land and has a powerful, powerful place in history. Let's take a moment and look at it. Put your thumb in Judges. Flip over to the left. One book. Joshua chapter 4. Let's make sure we know what's so powerful about Gilgal. Joshua chapter 4. People have got to finish going to the desert. They're preparing to go into the promised land. That's what's happening. Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4 verse 1. Now when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, take for yourselves 12 men from the people, one man from every tribe. Command them saying, take up for yourselves 12 stones from here out of the middle of the Jordan from the place where the priest's feet were standing firm and carry them over with you and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. So Joshua called the 12 men who had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. Joshua said to them, cross again to the ark Ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan, and each of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes on the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask later, What do these stones mean to you? then you will say to them, Because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever as the people of God were coming into the promised land that across the Jordan River they couldn't find a way to cross it so the ark of the covenant went first and the water split and everyone walked over on dry land and at that moment God told Joshua grab a rock there in the middle put it on your shoulder don't give me some little rock I want a big rock we're going to build a monument so that when everyone sees it they're going to remember the mighty hand of God. And when your children and your grandchildren see it and they say, hey, what's up with the monument? You're gonna tell them, the mighty hand of God brought us into the promised land. Let me tell you about the greatness of God. He reminds him and summarizes it again. Look at verse 19. Same chapter, Joshua chapter 4, verse 19. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Jericho. There's that city. Those 12 stones that they had taken from the Jordan on their shoulders, Joshua set up at Gilgal. He said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? You shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed. That all the peoples of the earth, get this, God did this, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Here's what's going on. Most people believe that that monument is still standing in Gilgal. Ehud and that people paying tribute, the ransom of sin. As they approached Gilgal, he notices, look again, Judges chapter three, verse 19, but he himself turned back from idols, which were at Gilgal. This one powerful monument that was supposed to be about the mighty hand of God, it's been surrounded by poles, idolatrous poles. Instead of looking at this monument, being faithful to God, this one powerful moment has now been desecrated by idols. So here's what most people think. Ehud and the tribute, they're coming back. They've paid the ransom. They're feeling horrible. Oh my gosh, how did it get to this? Ehud gets to Gilgal. He sees the stone monument. He sees the idols. And it clicks. Oh My gosh. See, the monument is about the mighty hand of God. He sends everyone on their way. You guys keep going. Ehud says, I'll be right back. Ehud goes back, and I love this. Verse 20. Ehud came to King Eglon while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, hey, I have a message from God for you. That's like a Dirty Harry movie, isn't it? Hey, come here. I got a message for you, right? Probably had that little gangster accent going. And he arose from his seat. I got to tell you, I love this story of Ehud. Andrew, one time, he was like in fourth grade, and he's like, hey, Dad, I know everything in the Bible, I'm like, what? He said, yeah, because children's mystery started going through the curriculum again. So he thought he learned it all. Oh, we're back to the original stories. All right, I got it. So I was like, oh, so you know the story about Ehud? No. I opened up this passage, read this story, see his eyes light up. It's always going to be one of my favorite stories because of that. Ehud came and said, hey, I got a message for you from the father. He arose from his seat. I'm telling you, it sounded just like that. <laughs> Ehud stretched out his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly, and the refuse came out. Ugh. Right? Like a lot of you moms wouldn't even let your kids watch that movie. Here it is in Scripture. Verse 23, then Ehud went out into the vestibule and shut the doors in the roof chamber behind him and locked them. He just snuck out the back door. Verse 24, when he had gone out, his servants came and looked, and behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked. And they said, he's only relieving himself in the cool room. Ah, let's leave him alone. He's going to the bathroom. Verse 25, they waited until they became anxious. Oh my gosh, I think the king might be sick. But behold, surprise, he did not open the doors of the roof chamber. Therefore, they took the key and opened them. And behold, their master had fallen to the floor, dead. Ehud, after paying this ransom, walking back, questioning what had happened, what had become of us. He goes to Gilgal and he sees these two very different pillars. One as a reminder of the mighty hand of God, the other, the failure of the people of God. And Ehud snaps. He goes back to King Eglon, delivers the people. Look at verse 26. Now Ehud escaped while they were delaying, and he passed by the idols and escaped to Sarah. It came upon It came about when he had arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim and the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country. And he was in front of them. He said to them, pursue them. The Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab and did not allow anyone to cross. They struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men. No one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land was undisturbed for 80 years. A term undisturbed, same word describing the rest that they had after Othniel. Got me to thinking this week. What are some reminders that God has put in our lives to remind us of the mighty hand of God and our commitments to him? As we're walking through the valleys of the shadow of death, perhaps there's a monument or two in your life that you need to witness. I was thinking through some of my, my wedding ring that I have now put on so much weight I cannot get off. This is more than a ring. It's a monument. You know that? It's a monument that a broken young man with more flaws than blessings could meet and marry someone like Gretchen. It's a reminder of God's grace because I want to tell you I was not, I was not really thinking clearly. I didn't say, wow, this is a good woman who loves God. She's going to help me and hold me accountable and encourage me to be faithful in my life for the Lord. No, I looked at her and said, man, this girl's hot and she likes me. I'm locking this in. By God's grace, I was able to marry someone like Gretchen. But this ring isn't just a reminder of God's grace. It's a reminder of my commitment. May, June 10th, 1995. I've never taken it off on purpose in my earlier years. Now I can't in my later years. Perhaps that in itself is a providential move of God. But it's a reminder of God's power and my commitment about the monument that we put up out front just a year ago. While well, the world is coming unglued, political unrest, economic failure, cultural division, global pandemic, God allows us to pay off our mortgage early. sparing us just the right amount of money that we need to continue to do ministry in a more expensive era of COVID with live streaming, extra staffing hours, the exact same right amount of money that we would need to continue to push forward in ministry to be faithful to the vision of God. God frees up because of our mortgage. Man, that monument, it's even written on there. It's a reminder of God's faithfulness and goodness to us. How about that kids and youth building in the back? That was dedicated as a monument at this church more than 10 years ago as a commitment that we're committed to focusing this generation on becoming lifelong followers of Christ. That's been a commitment that we've been striving to do And we doubled down on that commitment by hiring Pastor Ken, bringing him to help empower us even more to reach this next generation with the faithfulness of God. So my question for you is what's a monument in your life that maybe you need to remember? The mighty hand of God and the commitments that you have made. See, I don't think this book of the Bible is just about their time. This book of the Bible, the book of Judges, is about people in our time, too. And if you're like me, there's aspects where you can see God's plan. Amidst the brokenness of this world. Man, over the last two years, hardest years of ministry of my life, Yet they've been the most fruitful. Because of the pandemic, 11 churches are now partnering together. 11 pastors in the Chino Valley are on a group text praying for for each other, encouraging one another. Man, that was not happening three years ago. I have better relationships with government officials now than I've ever had in my life. I'm going to be able to pray for more people with them about their lives, their decision-making as a result of these last two years than any time in my life. God's been stirring something up even in our church over these last two years. Where I keep talking to people and we don't always know exactly what God's doing, but we know God's doing something. As Riley uh, plays... I ask you, maybe where do you need to recognize and remember that God has a plan? In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your pain, God is still at work doing something for his glory and for your growth. Maybe you need to remember that God is a God of mercy and compassion, that his grace is rooted in his love for you, that while you were at your worst, he died for you. And although you feel like maybe God is done with you, has abandoned you, has walked away from you, I want to make sure that you understand and you know today that is not the case. God is waiting for you to cry out. He is waiting for you to call. He is waiting for you to reach out, to cry out and ask for his mercy, his favor and his deliverance. Perhaps today is the day for you. Or maybe you're here recognizing That you haven't been faithful to your commitments. That God has done amazing work in your life. He has showered you with goodness, with favor, with forgiveness and mercy. To whom much is given, much is expected, and you have not been faithful. Maybe time, maybe today is that day to remember the goodness of God, and recommit your life to being a reflection of his glory even in the midst of the struggle of this world. However God's calling you to respond, let's do it together, let's pray. Oh God, again, we're grateful for your word that not only allows us to look at the failures of generations before, but God allows us to see your faithfulness in the midst of it. And God, we confess that it's so easy for us to just make this a book about history instead of using this book as a reflection into our own hearts. So God, I pray for people who are just coming unglued in life. God, who see nothing but hopelessness and despair and brokenness and doubt and questions and fears. For people today who are ready to run, who are ready to hang it up, who are ready to give up and give in. God, may you open their eyes and allow them to see your plan at work in their life. God, give them faith and confidence that they can trust you as they walk in their life faithful to your direction. God, for people here who doubt your love, your compassion, your mercy, who feel like maybe they've messed up too much, have been broken for far too long, for you to care about them, God, will you open their eyes and allow them to see you as I do. Allow them to hear your voice. Give them the courage they need to repent, to cry out, to reach out to you for deliverance. And God, for many of us, God, we confess that your mighty hand has been at work in our lives. God, for many of us, for generations. God, you have worked through my grandparents, through my parents. God, may you use those memorials, may may, may you use those reminders, those testimonies of your power. God, to drive us down on our commitment to you. Root us in our commitment to be faithful to you. God, even though we walk down through those valleys of the shadow of death, God, give us faith and courage that we would not fear any evil in confidence knowing that you're with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. God, you prepare a table before us. Even when we're surrounded by our enemies, you anoint our heads with oil. In the midst of all this brokenness, God, our cup still overflows. God, give us confidence in your goodness and your mercy and in your promise to have us dwell with you forever. We pray everything in Jesus' name, amen.